0: Heard the call to build your small business? Make it happen with a .NET domain name, the place for dreamers for 30 years and counting. Visit keepdreamingup.net for tips and advice, whether you're just getting started or looking to grow. That's keepdreamingup.net. And welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Meara, Democratic pollster with the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis anderson Republican pollster with the firm Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the latest polls driving the news in politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. So we're so excited to have Christy Cork uh, with us today. Uh, Christy, you uh, are doing what a lot of us doing this dream of doing which is leaving political polling behind and living in living in paris is that where you are i mean it sounds pretty fabulous Can you no know? actually
1: i'm i'm in nice I'm oh, in okay.
0: southern France.
2: oh that's even better that's where i went on my honeymoon yeah <laughs> is <it really>? sorry <laughs> <laughs> oh my god
0: so um right so you've clearly you've figured it out so tell us a little bit about uh what you're working on and why uh you left political polling behind
1: Well, um, I was a political pollster for a number of years, and I've been abroad for about 14 years now, and I was um, working for an organization that does democracy promotion, and for a variety of reasons, I didn't want to do that anymore, and I thought perhaps I could do something different, and I took a consulting position uh, uh, managing the data collection for a survey in Afghanistan. This is back in, I think, 2006 or 2007. So it was quite a while ago. And, um, you know, I discovered it was really fun. And, um, the, it seemed like the opportunity came up and that perhaps if I could do this for one client, I could do it for other clients. And I moved to Istanbul and I was in Istanbul for eight years. And I just recently moved to France about a year ago. And it actually turns out that it turned out that I, could do this for other clients and I do um, I do quantitative and qualitative project management uh, for a variety of different clients uh, US government contractors NGOs PR companies American political consultants who are mostly doing research projects in places either they don't want to go to because it's too far it's much easier to have somebody who's based in Europe um, to do these things or they don't want to go to because they're usually in conflict zones. So I've developed a bit of a niche of doing um, research in very in difficult places, either because they're developing or because there's um, perhaps war, we would say. Yeah.
2: <laughs> At one point I had a client who approached me and said, you know, hey, we're kind of interested in doing a survey in Libya. But, you know, of course, that's, oh, that's yeah. not really my core competency. So uh, you would be the person, somebody like you would be who a person like me would call to say, I'm interested in getting a read on what people in Libya have to think about this issue. Is that, is that correct?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's lots of places you say, Oh, you can't do research there. And other than I think maybe Syria and Yemen right now, probably in Libya. Um, I don't really know if there's any place that you can't do research in, you know, you make certain, um, concessions in terms of methodology and quality control and things like that. But, um, usually almost uh, pretty much almost anywhere you can do it.
2: So I'd love to hear a little bit about some of the more kind of creative techniques you've had to employ. And, um, you know, based on the, the cultural needs of the area i mean i have a friend that that used to talk about doing focus groups in ukraine and how you know he just was like we'd had to we'd have to rent out like a little hotel ballroom and just invite people Mm -hmm. and promise them lots of drinks and that you're basically just sitting around the the bar drinking with people and that's your focus group um and that you know culturally that wouldn't make as much sense here in the u.s but it makes perfect sense over there i mean what are some some stories of you know really interesting things that you've had to do to adapt research techniques to sort of local cultures and norms.
1: Well, the, the, the hardest thing that I have, I've had to do is forget everything I ever knew about what a focus group looks like (laughs) in America or Europe. Um, and, and, you know, for good reason, uh, you know, I, I haven't worked in the U S for quite a while, but I know how difficult it is now to conduct good focus groups. I don't have those problems. um, but I did one of the most interesting projects I've done in the last couple of years is uh, in Liberia. I did a series. I did a, a series of fourteen groups, and I there was no there, there. Most places you go, there's some kind of capacity for a field firm that can do the data collection or do the recruiting. In Liberia, it didn't exist. So I, I, I had a group of I think twelve young people. They I call them kids, but they it, they were probably in their early twenties. So I trained them how to be moderators. I trained the, field, the, the an NGO how to do recruitment. And we did focus groups in probably some of the most remote and difficult places I've, I've ever had to work. And, we, you know, we, a focus group is when you get a group of people and you sit underneath a tree with somebody who guides a conversation. And um, you can record it and observe it and it's not always the best research you've ever done you kind of also have to i don't want to say lower your standards but be a bit realistic about the quality of the data you collect and the, you know the ability of your moderator um but it's we got really good data and we did it in 14 places and these these young kids they did a really passable job they got through a guide they got through it in a um you know in, in a thorough and complete way and we you know we put together we were able to put together a um a report that provided ab- guidance for an advocacy campaign on things like women's uh, political participation and water and sanitation and natural resource Allocation Afghanistan.
2: Now, Afghanistan, so it was really fun. You mentioned that you've done research in Afghanistan. Uh, that's one of the places was mm-hmm. one of my first sort of exposures to uh, conflict zone research. Um, was at the Apor conference, I think, in t- 2010, and there was a whole panel mm-hmm. where the folks from ABC who had worked on, I guess, they won an Emmy for um, the research that they'd been doing in Afghanistan and learning about all of the different challenges of how you have to train, you know, people to go walk and knock on doors and you know ask for the mm-hmm. certain person in the household and um, and how you have to have men only to interview men, women to interview women. I mean, it just it fascinated me to hear about how it was possible to conduct research even in places where the Taliban was in control. And um, so I'd love mm-hmm. to hear a little bit more about your experiences doing research in Afghanistan and how that actually led you uh, to want to do more of this in this field. Well, it's funny
1: because Afghanistan, I, I like to call it the Iowa, of South Asia, because probably by about 2010, <laughs> I doubt there was a, an Afghan that had not been interviewed, probably at least once, maybe more than that, by some branch of the U.S. government, you know, research on behalf of some branch of the U.S. government. Ah. Um, so actually in Afghanistan, the capacity for data collection is very, very high, because, I mean, they're, they're doing 5 and 10,000 uh, 10, um, size samples all the time. So, Mm -hmm. but it is, and that's kind of where I learned how to do it. It's where a lot of people kind of learned how to do it because the U.S. government was spending so much money Mm -hmm. there on research for a period of time, which they're no longer really doing quite as much. So
0: Um, you end up building a, you know, when you leave a conflict zone and you finish a project, is there now a research protocol or research operation intact for the next NGO or government contract to come around?
1: Well, in the places where I've been, kind of among the first, absolutely, I was one of. Um, I did some focus groups in Libya um, about a month after they pulled Gaddafi out of the drain pipe that he had been hiding in, and I worked a lot with um, some local data collectors there to do to work on their qualitative capacity, and later a bit on their on their quantitative. That's not always the point of the exercise. I mean, mostly when I'm doing it, I'm doing it for my own client's benefit. Uh, to collect the best data we can, and I hope that I leave something behind um, for, for future folks. But generally in any place where there has been um, market research for consumer products, there's research capacity. And there's a few places where I've been that haven't been the case. Liberia is one. Djibouti was one. um Afghanistan's a bit strange because it's distorted because there was so much U.S. government money going in there for so long. Um, Iraq is the same. Um, Pakistan has ex- excellent data collectors. I don't need to do any trainings there because it's a big consumer market. So there's lots of um, market research firms doing very, you know, very good research in places like that. It's the small places where there's not big markets that um, are a little bit more challenging. And I do, I do end up doing a lot of training of data collectors, and I do a lot of quality control. I do, I train uh, focus group moderators. And I like to think that there's a lot of. I was trained using the Reva method, so that's the one I use. So I think there's a lot of you know kind of Reva trained moderators out in West Africa and North Africa. So we should should moderators I've trained.
0: We should just interject that what Reva is. Reva is the really one of the gold standards in terms of focus group moderation training, and it happens to be based here in the DC area. I've gone. Kristen, you've gone.
2: I've never gone to Riva, but I'm sending like, somebody <laughs> from my team to go to Riva it's, in like two
0: weeks. It's fascinating because it's like a focus group. You learn how to moderate a focus group by participating in a focus group, and then you moderate your focus group, and then someone else moderates the participants about your job moderating a focus group. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really like by the end, then you you have another focus group to talk about what it was like it to be in your focus group trading session the whole week. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty fascinating. By the it's end, it's very
1: like, rigorous. Yeah, Very by the rigorous. end you're like
0: focus groups are incredible. You just want to focus group everything. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so in, in all, of I always tra- tell I always tell the people I'm training that it's extremely easy to do a bad job of moderation, but it's extremely difficult to do a good moderation. And that was, I think, probably the main takeaway I took when I did Mar- uh Reva training. I think in like 1995 or 1996. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: Well, I want to find out, um, you know, since you're doing research in conflict zones a lot, has there ever been a time that you have felt like physically unsafe or, you know, had any sort of kind of scary encounter? I mean, some of the places that you're describing, you know, doing research in, I just can't even imagine what that must have been like.
1: I I, I mean, yes and no. I I have a couple of very, one particular very vivid example or rather vivid example, Uh, but for the most part, no. Um, mostly, I'm working in places that are fairly stable, and it's the, the, the thing that is the big concern. Is I'm not the one out collecting the data. It's the interviewers that are the ones who mm-hmm. are kind of putting themselves in danger. And I've been lucky enough that I've never had anybody who was injured and killed. I've had people detained, and I've had people, you know, disappear for an uncomfortable amount of time. But that's always kind of your worst nightmare. I've never myself felt like I've been in that situation. But when I, you know, the first project I did in Libya was right after the revolution, and it was amazing because um, there we we had the opportunity to focus groups on people who no one had asked their opinion on any issue for forty years, and we didn't know how the focus groups were going to go, and we didn't know what they were going to say or how they would react or behave. And basically, they wouldn't shut up. Is what we found. Right. You just couldn't. Everybody had to tell this story and how they felt about this enormous change that had gone through wow. their their country. And it was wonderful. It was amazing. And then I did I did a lot of work there. And that was 2011, 2012, and 13. And uh, summer of 2013 is when things started kind of going downhill quite a bit. And I was there for a project. And it was not, I, I you, you, uh, you, you get a sixth sense about these sorts of things, the places you shouldn't be, and security situations which are not, um, favorable for you. And I was very happy when the project ended and I got to leave. And the next day, an RPG hit my hotel that I'd been staying in for like three or four weeks. So I'm like, okay, I, there was some, there was some periods where I was, um, I'm seriously reconsidering some life choices, but that was probably the worst situation. Most of the other places, it's actually quite the opposite. Is I'm very welcomed. Mm-hmm. I'm you know the folks I'm working with are very you know, interested in do, a, doing a good job and making me happy, which I appreciate always.
0: So in the context of the work that you do, do you find it – what's your take when you see people quibbling and wringing their hands over whether or not the polls are a point or two off from what the final outcome is in election?
1: I don't do quite as much. I don't do a lot of election work, and most of the the work I'm doing is oriented towards finding out what people think in terms of their development priorities or developing advocacy campaigns or communications campaigns – um, And I love this debate uh, over, you know, whose polls are right and who, whose polls are wrong. And I think it's extremely important and vital, but it's absolutely not my problem. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's really an academic. <laughs> it's an academic debate for me. Um, But I, you know, I lived in Turkey for eight years and the last couple, there's been several elections there. And I, this is a, my favorite example. The so last one, I think it was the most recent election, the polls we're pretty off and there was a lot of everybody saying, well, it's just like America and it's just like UK. And actually it was really different. And they had very little in common with the problems that are, we separate, you know, with with election polling in the UK. Um, The big problem in places like Turkey, not just there, but um, places that are not exactly free um, is there's not a lot of transparency in the polls. And I was kind of a one woman, one crazy woman uh, Twitter campaign about, trying to bring more transparency to the polling that the public polling that was done in Turkey around the election. And I did blame the international media a lot for not reporting in any way critically about these, this data that was coming out. They wouldn't report the dates. They wouldn't report sample sizes, really basic information. And so I would use this, uh, you know, I had a couple of blog posts and a lot of Twitter posts about how great it was when I when it was Gallup that was wrong and, 2012 or 2012 had problems in those elections and how transparent they were in trying to figure out what went wrong. And I said, when pollsters are transparent and when they release their data sets and they release a lot of information about their methodology, it increases public confidence in polling, which is a problem that's, you know, that's, you suffer in the U S you suffer in the UK and really, a lot of other places, but for different reasons. And so I've always kind of I've become kind of a big advocate for more transparency in in public polling.
2: Well, there's um, there are sort not of not because and I suspect there are two sides to that, right? That on the one hand, there's the transparency problem of is this data real or is this data being cooked by some way by, you know, government you know, entities, mm-hmm. you know, because Absolutely. It's, but then there's also I mean, I'm always fascinated by this question of how do you do survey research in a place where we do not have the same sorts of freedoms that we may have in the West where, pe- you know, do people feel comfortable saying, you know, this is what I feel if you feel if the government is pretty oppressive or the government does not love free speech. I mean, that's that's the other side of, of the the difficulty there in terms of getting good data in societies that are less than free.
1: It, absolutely, that's absolutely true. And however, I think a lot of cases it's a bit overstated. What I have found, and again, I'm saying this from the point of view that I think election polling is a bit different. And when you're talking about election polling in a place in Russia, that's a, absolutely a. Putin's a, approval a, a, rating, 97%. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. But you're measuring what you're measuring in a place like that. Is when you're talking about Putin's approval ratings or who would vote for Putin, you're talk, You're basically measuring propaganda, and you're measuring to what degree people are, you know, are buying into this propaganda. That it, it, when there's no independent source of information, right. I'm uh, most of the work I do is not like that. We're asking people, you know, what's the biggest problem facing your community? What problems do you most want solved? And what I've found is that people who have never had their opinion asked about anything in their entire lives cannot wait to tell a pollster or an interviewer what they think. Right. And I love that. And I get really mad when people say, oh, they're, you know, oh, the respondents are lying or people are not telling the truth. It's like we have ways of measuring whether people are scared. And I do that a lot. I have a series of questions that I add to questionnaires at the end um, for the interviewer to record his or her impressions of the respondent and whether they're scared or whether they're reluctant to answer all the questions, some questions, whether there was somebody else in the room at the time. But in my experience, what I found is that people who are not asked their opinion on everything all the time, can't wait to deliver some, you know, their, their views on politics even. And you have to be careful. You really have to, it kind of, it depends on the country, but in general, I would say that's what my experience has been.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, that's true here. I'm not surprised to hear that that's true in other places, particularly if, yeah. if, they, if they, they don't get over-contacted the way people are here. Well, Christy, how can, exactly. people, how can exactly. people find more about you uh, on Twitter or elsewhere? How can people keep up with uh, what you're up to?
1: Well, my, I have a website. It's um, quirkglobalstrategies.com. Um, that's where you can find out more about the work I do and the kind of clients I work for. I'm also on Twitter at C E Quirk, C E Q U I R K, um, in which I talk about a lot of different issues, but, um, primarily oriented towards polling and also things related to the former Soviet Union, Turkey, Middle East, are kind of the geographical areas in which I have some interest and knowledge. Great. Well, thank you so much. This was
0: really fascinating, and I'm so glad we got to talk today.
1: No, I enjoyed it. I you guys have a great uh, a great podcast. Good work. Oh, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> thanks. Take care.